Good evening, everyone. I'm sure you have noticed how human beings love to classify things, to categorize things. We, we, we just sort of can't help it. And you know, sociologists make their living do, doing that. And in many ways, it's a good thing. Helps us understand similarities and differences between us so that we can interact in helpful ways. And so we have various categories like ethnicity. So someone might identify as an Arab or a Native American or Hispanic. Gender, that was meant to be very simple, male or female. But you know today it's gotten incredibly complicated. Right now on Facebook, there are 50 gender options. <clears throat> Religion, someone might say I'm a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or an atheist or everyone's favorite one today, I'm spiritual. Occupation, lawyer, homemaker, construction worker, teacher. <clears throat> you can classify people by geography or psychological profile. And as I said, these are helpful, even inevitable categories. But in tonight's passage, Paul points us to two much more basic categories of people. It's as if there's a great divide. He says that every person, no matter what other categories they fit into, no matter their age or their gender or where they live, are either in the flesh or in the spirit. That's it. <clears throat> now, he's not collapsing the order of creation. He's not totally dismissing these other categories. In Galatians 3.28, he said, in Christ there's no Jew or Greek, that's ethnic. There's no slave or free, that's social status. There's no male or female, that's gender. But he is saying that fundamentally, everybody is either in the flesh or in the spirit. So I'd invite you right now to open your Bibles to Romans 8. And we're going to pick up where Jason left off a couple weeks ago. We're going to read verses 9 through 11. Romans 8, <clears throat> 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray God's blessing on tonight's word. Heavenly Father, this is your inspired, infallible, authoritative, inerrant word. But Lord, we are none of those things. So tonight we pray that this word would captivate our souls, would liberate our hearts, would instruct our minds, and would set us free to walk in ways that are pleasing to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so tonight's sermon is pretty simple. Three verses, three points. But before we get to the three points... I want to make two general observations in these verses. First of all, in verses 9 through 11, notice <clears throat> how Trinitarian these verses are. It's typically Paul. He talks about being in the Spirit. He talks about the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. 
him who raised Jesus from the dead. The point is, as Christians, we are Trinitarian people, and so it's good for us to think that way. Not just so we can show how we're different from Muslims or Jews, but because in reality, everything God does is Trinitarian. Each member of the Trinity is, is equally involved in creation and redemption. So, it is right for us to regularly acknowledge and honor and thank and depend on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so think Trinitarian. The second general observation is, I want you to notice, if you look back at verse 8, there's a subtle change in the way Paul's writing. In verse 8, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Notice there is a change from the third person to the second person. <clears throat> in verse 8, Paul is talking about God and about people, and then he subtly but powerfully switches to talking to people for God, to the Romans first and, and to us. So tonight, it's always true, but tonight it's even more obvious, the living God is speaking to each one of you. So, sit up straight. Lean forward a little bit and pay attention. All of you, even you kids, the Lord God wants to speak to you tonight and has encouraging things for you to hear. <clears throat> so that's one sort of little pre-application. The second thing about that, that change from third person to second person is in ministry, and that's all of us, we're always ministering to one another. We're always speaking into each other's lives. Don't always just speak about God as if he were an interesting subject to discuss. He is the living God who directly addresses his people. So at least at times, speak for God directly to people, like Paul. And later in the sermon, there'll be an example of what that looks like. So those are the preliminary points. So now three verses, three points. So for the first point, <clears throat> again, I'm going to just highlight verses 8 and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So here's point number one. Every believer in Jesus Christ <clears throat> is no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Very simple. Every believer in Jesus Christ is no longer in the flesh, but is now in the Spirit. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be in the flesh? I'm going to borrow here from Paul's language in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and suggest to be in the flesh means five things. It means, first of all, to be dead to God, deceived by the world, discipled by Satan, dominated by selfish desires, and doomed to destruction. That's what it means to be in the flesh. The person in the flesh is committed to the kingdom of this world. The person in the flesh either doesn't believe in God altogether or, as one writer says, 
sees God as a supporting actor in the epic story of me, myself, and I. Lots of people are glad to believe in God as long as God is supporting their story and is giving them what they want. Now, from Romans 1 through 8, Jason preached on a couple weeks ago, we see that the mind of the person in the flesh is hostile to God's law. This person does not and cannot submit to God's law. It's what theologians call total inability. This person, according to Paul, absolutely cannot please God. And their end, their destiny, is death. To be in the flesh is not good. What does it mean to be in the spirit? According to verses 1 and 2 in Romans 8, it means that the gospel has set a person free from all condemnation and set them free from the law or the dominion or the power of sin and death. There's been a decisive change of kingdoms. There's been a decisive change of allegiances. The man or woman in the spirit is, in contrast to what I said from Ephesians 2, alive to God, crucified to the world, delivered from the tyranny of the devil, ruled by the desire to glorify God and looking forward eagerly to enjoying him forever. The person in the spirit sees Jesus Christ as the central person in their story. Not only that, as the central person in all of history and is happy to take just a small part in furthering his interests and goals. The person who is in the spirit is freed and ruled by the Holy Spirit and feels it a glorious privilege and responsibility to live in a way that pleases God. As Pastor Jason said a couple weeks ago, for the person in the Spirit, service to God is pleasure. Couldn't be more different. A great divide. In the Spirit is synonymous <clears throat> with having the Spirit of God dwell in you. It's synonymous with having the Spirit of Christ or having Christ in you. All these things in these verses are saying the same thing, simply emphasizing a different person in the Trinity. So how does this happen? How does one change from being in the flesh to being in the spirit? Well, according to Scripture, it's gloriously simple. You repent and you believe. You turn and you trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way in John 5, 24. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Peter says it this way in Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says it perhaps most simply in Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I love that one. Because sometimes life is so hard, so confusing. Things are swirling in chaos so much that all we can do is just cry out to Jesus. But I can do that. Jesus, help. Jesus, 
save me. And Paul says it's that simple. That's how you are transferred from being in the flesh to in the spirit. There's no long process. There's no arduous task to do. You turn and you trust. Now notice here in verse 9, Paul uses conditional language. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Then he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, this might trouble some sensitive hearts. Almost sounds like Paul's raising a question, like, are you sure? Are you sure you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you? But I don't think that's his main point. I don't think he's trying to raise doubts here. I don't think his main point, I know it is not to create sort of an excessive introspection to try to see if you're in the Spirit. I think rather he wants to encourage you. You do have the Spirit of Christ. You do belong to Him. And that means that there are wonderful gospel benefits that God gives you. I, I said I was going to share a little something about uh, how direct speech works. And this is really where I learned it. It's, it's an anecdote from the counseling of the late David Powelson, <clears throat> someone incredibly important in my life, sort of my counseling mentor. Um, I, I want to use this anecdote to show how this truth of being in the Spirit combined with direct speech is powerful. So let me read it. I remember the very first time I grasped something of God's call to speak directly into people's lives rather than being general and theoretical. I was talking with a Christian man who was bothered by his indulgence in sexual fantasies. He was discouraged, oppressed by a low-grade sense of guilt, but he was not very motivated to grapple with the perversity of his thought life. With a shrug, he said, well, of course, what do you expect? I'm in the flesh. I responded, but you aren't in the flesh. You're in the spirit. He rocked back. His eyes opened wide and he started to think hard. He got very serious. From that moment, the terrain on which his battles were being fought was redefined. I could easily have forgotten the truth and vaguely sympathized, yeah, I know everybody struggles, but... Or I could even have voiced the same truth one step removed toward abstraction. It says in Romans 8, 9 that you're not in the flesh but in the spirit. Or I could have said, do a Bible study on, on Romans 8 and Galatians 5 on the battle between the flesh and the spirit. In fact, we did talk about both of those passages a few minutes later. Both the citation and the homework had been set up by the personal directness of challenge and encouragement. <clears throat> Biblical truth, powerful, especially if we speak it directly into people's lives. So that's the first point. <clears throat> Everyone who has put their faith in Christ is no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. Point number two, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
<clears throat> now, this second point's a little more complicated, so I'm going to read it twice. The first time with a couple editorial comments, and the second time I'll just read it straight. So here's the point. Although we are still affected by sin, and therefore bound to physically die, I think that's what Paul means by the body is dead because of sin. The Spirit gives us sin-overcoming life and power. I think that's what he means by the Spirit is life because of Christ's righteousness. I'll say that again without the comments. Although we are still affected by sin and bound to physically die, the Spirit gives us sin-overcoming power right now because of Christ's righteousness. So what Paul is saying is, even though we're not in the flesh anymore, that's a major point here, Scripture teaches, in fact, Paul teaches clearly in other places, and we know from our own sad experience that we still struggle with indwelling sin. And we know that we're going to physically die. We're going to pay the wages of sin, which is death, unless Jesus comes back first. In other words, we're not home yet. We live in the twilight of what theologians call the already and the not yet. Paul is painfully honest about his own indwelling sin in Romans 7. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So there he's talking about this struggle with sin, sin that dwells in me. Now sometimes, again, sensitive Christian souls become aware, painfully aware of this struggle with sin. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a new season of life and so a new sin or a new temptation comes on like a flood. Or maybe it's one of those sins that it just seems so hard to overcome, and we've struggled with it for years or decades. And the struggle is so hard and so painful that the person thinks, I must not even be a Christian, or at least I'm not a very good one. God must be disappointed with me. But brothers and sisters, the struggle is a good sign. It means there's life in you, and you are recognizing sin as an alien, as an enemy. Now, I'm not talking about people who have given up the struggle. But if you are struggling with sin, that's a good sign. It's a good sign that the Spirit dwells in you. Secondly, Paul says we know that sin leads to death. That goes all the way back to Genesis 2. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. So even though we are in the Spirit, we still die. But because of the gospel, even that has changed. Because Jesus died, because he rose again, death is no longer the same. Even though we will die, death has been gloriously conquered. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that death, still the wages of sin, 
has been conquered by Jesus, resurrection has been transformed into the portal of eternal life. But there's even more good news. And this good news we don't need to wait for. Right now, Paul says, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. That means right now we're no longer in the realm of sin or under the power of the flesh. We've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And although remnant sin is still waging guerrilla warfare every day, because the Spirit is life, we have the freedom and the power and the responsibility to successfully crush the rebellion. Paul says it this way earlier in the chapter, Romans 8, 1 through 3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, that sounds like the spirit is life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So Paul's talking about the overcoming victory of the spirit. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's the same as saying, if Christ is in you, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now that last part, because of righteousness, is important. What's the source of this Spirit? We don't deserve the Spirit. We're sinners. What's the gateway through which this overcoming power comes to us? It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. The Spirit is life. You have power to overcome because Christ's righteousness has been applied to you. Paul says it this way in Romans 5.17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the source of of the overcoming victory of the law of the spirit of life is Jesus' one act of righteousness. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Last point, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So here's the third point. If the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, the Father will one day give resurrection life to our mortal bodies. So God's salvation, the gospel, is comprehensive. Forgiveness, righteousness, power to successfully fight sin now and full glory, including glory for our mortal bodies when Jesus comes again. This will be the climax. This will be the consummation of the Spirit's work in those who are in the Spirit. So again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, he's talking about our bodies, is perishable. But what is raised is imperishable. What is sown is dishonor. It is raised 
in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And finally, 1 Peter, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And part of that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading is a new body that will partake of those very same qualities. So as we close, let me, let me just summarize the three points again. Point number one, every believer in Jesus Christ, you are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. Point number two, although you're still affected by sin, you still fight it, and bound to die, unless Jesus returns first, the Spirit right now gives you sin-overcoming power because of Christ's righteousness. And third, if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which He does if you've trusted in Christ, the Father will one day give resurrection life to your mortal body. It's good news. I want to close with uh, a part of a poem by John Piper. I think I've read this before. I think it just gives us a little taste. It's, it's really hard to imagine heaven, isn't it? Um, I, I, I remember Jason a, a year or two ago talked about some saint who spent a half an hour a day meditating on heaven. That sounds like a great idea, but I think for most of us, after five minutes, it would be like, I'm, I don't know. I, I don't really know what it would be like. Well, again, I think John Piper, just using his poetic talents, just, just gives us some, some echoes, some images, some ideas of what that might be like. So I'll close with this. And then the Lord wiped every tear away and turned to see his bride. Her heart had yearned 4,000 years for this, his face shone like the sun, and every trace of wrath was gone. And in her bliss, she heard the master say, watch this, come forth, all goodness from the ground, come forth and let the earth redound with joy. I turned and saw a wonder there, a big man running on the lawn. Well, that's old John Young with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift their voice and sing. The diabetic eats at will. The coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk, the deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are lithe and free, and every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within, and every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy and endless ages to employ the mind and heart and understand 
and love the sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. Let's pray. Lord, we tremble with joy before your majesty, your holiness, and your tender mercies. Lord, we get glimpses sometimes of how unable and rebellious and depraved our hearts are, and we groan, we cry out like Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then, Lord, <clears throat> you give us glimpses of Christ crucified. And we cry out, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this gospel, the most precious thing in the universe. We thank you that Christ has come so that we could return home with him. We thank you that he has lived the life that we were supposed to and couldn't. He has died the death we deserve. He has been gloriously raised from the dead. He has ascended to heaven, taking captivity captive and given us gifts. Right now, he sits enthroned at your right hand, Father, and intercedes tenderly, patiently, persistently for each one of us until we're safely home. Thank you for the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, how we often neglect him. Oh, how we often forget about him. But without the Holy Spirit, just like the Father and the Son, we would be dead in our trespasses. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have awakened us and enlivened us. And we pray that you would make Christ real and bring home his truth as Neil preached this morning, even tomorrow. We bless you that we can end this Lord's Day looking at your word. And we pray that this word would overcome all obstacles from within and without and would take root and bear 30 and 60 and 100 fold of fruit to the glory of God. And we pray it all in the mighty, precious name of Jesus. Amen. Say. He opens with a command and he ends with a command. Take heart. Do not be afraid. Take heart. Do not be afraid. On what grounds, Jesus? There's a storm here. I just lost my job. My marriage is falling apart. My kids are wandering. We're in debt up to our neck. This sin just keeps assaulting me. And I keep giving in over and over. Take heart. Do not fear. How, Jesus? By what He places in between those two commands. It is I. Take heart. Do not fear. Why? Because it's I. It's literally the divine name that he uses. I am. I'm here. God's with you. Jesus is the strength of his people. The disciples won't understand this in all of its 
depth in this moment. They won't understand that until after the resurrection. He's telling them God is here with you. Friends, never is the danger so great. Never is the trial so grim, the darkness so black, the storm so severe that we are ever in danger of being outside our Savior's care and strength. Never. If it was our faith alone that we had to battle Satan and to battle all the forces of darkness in this world with, we would be outmatched. But we're kept by a sovereign, sustaining Christ of love. And He is our strength. Though all the forces of darkness are opposed to us, there is, no, there is more power aligned with us than there is against us. And Peter begins to understand this in the moment. And he sees the Lord Jesus. There is my sovereign, sustaining Lord and Savior, my strength. And so he says, I, I love Peter. He says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It's not doubt that he's uttering there. It's as if he's saying, Lord, as surely as it is you, command me to come out to you. Jesus does. Peter, in this amazing act of faith, steps out of the boat. Imagine the faith it took in that moment when the, the wind's blowing and the waves are rolling and the rain is pouring. And he just steps out of the boat. When I was a Boy Scout, each summer at our summer camp, we would build this huge monkey bridge out of lashings and knots and wood. And the thing would be, we aimed at usually 17, 18 feet off the ground. And so we would spend the first two days of summer camp making this thing. And then the last four days of summer camp, we would then walk on this thing. Well, some would walk on this thing. Every year we would build it. And every year I would help build it. And it was a lot of work. And you get... This bridge that was just a single thick rope that would go across and then you would have two ropes on the side that you would then have to walk across that rope and hold the two ropes on the side. And Every year it feels like I would walk my way to the top of that monkey bridge and I would stare at the rope and I would stare at the handrails, ropes, and I would see the ground beneath and I would decide... I think I'm going to head back down. It looked fun from the ground. Uh, it didn't look so fun from the air. To take that step off took an amazing amount of trust in what we had just built. And we were a bunch of boys. He takes the step off the boat in faith. Peter's often thrown under the bus in this passage, but to take that step of faith off the boat onto the water as the sea is raging, it's amazing. He takes that step, 
His eyes are fixed on Jesus. Jesus gives him the courage and Jesus kept him above the water. There's incredible strength in Christ. The object of Peter's faith keeps him. But then what happens? His eyes wander from Christ. And Matthew says in verse 30 that he, quote, saw the wind. Now, you can't see the wind. They do. He's seen the effects of the wind. But what's so amazing is that he is experiencing the effects of being with Jesus. He's walking on water. The circumstances, the effects of the wind, they begin to dominate his mind in the moment and he's no longer looking to Jesus, but he's looking to the world. And he begins to sink. But I think this is one of the great beauties of this text. I love that Peter doesn't just sink immediately. He doesn't just go below the waves. Jesus doesn't allow his faith to be swamped. He's not overcome by the waves. He just allows him to slip a little even as he allowed his disciples to be beaten a little by the wind and the waves. He's their strength. They're held up not by their faith, but by His faithfulness. So He doesn't slip below the surface. And so Peter calls out, Lord, save me. That's a good cry when we find ourselves faltering in faith. Lord, save me. And Matthew tells us that Jesus was reluctant to save him. No. Matthew tells us that Jesus turned away from him. No. Matthew tells us that Jesus took the opportunity to rebuke him. No. Matthew tells us that immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. He's our strength. My confidence is not in my faith, but in the object of my faith. And that leads to our final point. Christ is and forever shall be the Savior of His people. You can be confident. As one commentator said, the moral of the story is not therefore that Peter is flawed because he took his eyes off of Jesus. The lesson is that Peter's Failure does not matter because Jesus does not take his eyes off Peter. Peter's faith is mixed. He's strong in one moment and weak in the next. Can I get an amen there? In fact, when Jesus says to him, O you of little faith, it's actually one word. He just calls him little faiths. You little faiths. Isn't that what we often feel like? Just little faiths walking around. Sometimes stumbling around. Sometimes crawling around. But Christ with great care and even greater patience never rejects His people for weak faith. Now He's going to encourage and He's going to challenge and He's going to seek to strengthen that faith. But He never rejects us for it. As an old Puritan said, though there might be more smoke than fire, He would not quench but cherish it. Your grace may be little and your corruption much, he will prize you yet. 
Mixed up in Peter, as is true of all the disciples in that boat, as is true as every single person in this room, there is mixed up together faith and doubt. Even the very best among us in this room does not have a perfected faith. It's mixed up with doubt. But we have a perfect Savior. And He not only saved us, but He is saving us. So in light of that, we should expect to go through trials and expect to go through tribulations and go, expect to go through suffering so that He might strengthen our faith. Because He's perfecting us. But we should also expect that our sovereign, sustaining, strong, saving Christ will not let us go in the midst of it. He can't. Because He saved us and so He will save us. Jesus asked Peter a question that causes self-reflection. He says, why did you doubt? It isn't meant to be a harsh question. It's meant to be kind of instructive, corrective question. Why did you doubt? It is, do you know who I am? Do you know who you are to me? It's a benefit to asking ourselves questions like that in the midst of our own anxieties and fears. And am I not His? Why am I doubting? Why am I fearful? Does He not watch over me? Do I not know who He is and who He has always been and who He promises to be? Do I really think that He has stopped being that in this moment? He preserves me. Without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, all things must be subservient to my salvation, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. And that should lead that knowledge of who Christ is and who He is to us should lead to what is the climax of this text. The climax is not the calming of the storm. The climax is not Jesus lifting Peter's head above the water. The climax is verse 33, and those in the boat worshipped Him, saying, truly, You are the Son of God. It elicits praise. Who is this? They've never used this term for him before the disciples. He's the Son of God. Satan will use it in the temptation. The Father will use it in Jesus' baptism. But the disciples have never arrived at this point in the Gospels. But now, as they see him for who he is, that he is the sovereign, that he is this sustaining, that He is this saving, strong Christ. It elicits praise for them. Truly, this is the Son of God and they worship Him. And Jesus receives rightfully the worship. The sovereign Christ who sustains His people and is the strength of His people and is the Savior of His people knows what is best for His people. 
got to trust that. You have to trust that. All things are working together for your good, dear Christian. It's not a throwaway line that we just give one another so that we can go on and move on to the happy person in the next room. It's true. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Because we are little fates walking around. We have a great Savior who holds us fast. And will not lose His grip upon us. Let's pray. Lord and our Savior, Christ Jesus, we do exalt you this morning. What a great Savior, a great God, a great friend you are to sinners. Forgive us that our faith is often tepid. Forgive us that it is mixed with doubt. Forgive us that though you prove yourself over and over, we continue to struggle to trust you with all that we are. Oh, we believe, Lord Jesus, but help us in our unbelief. Help us to know you more fully and to know you more accurately and to worship you as a result. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.